And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here on Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf, and joining me in the studio today, Reverend Mark Diedrich, serving as pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York. Hi, Dan. And Dr. Hans Vogt, Associate Professor of Ulster County Community College. Hi. Gentlemen, it's good to have you here today. On this program, within the milieu of history, theology, and current events, we attempt to explore a variety of questions of interest which you, the listener, have brought to our attention or that we've dug up as we prepared for this program. We'll offer a perspective that's hopefully anchored in history and biblical theology to help flesh out the topic and provide something for you to think about. Today on our agenda, we have an interesting question that's been brought up, and I'm going to let Hans uh, explain this question or uh, pose this question to us. Well, Dan, the question has to do with the just war uh, tradition, uh, which was developed by Christian thinkers, including uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, and then refined by later thinkers, which really lays out uh, criteria for when it is right for Christians to go to war and then how they should conduct themselves in war. And the question is, does the American Revolution fit those criteria for being a just war? Mm -hmm. So in other words, Christians down through the ages have really dealt with this topic and have written down their thoughts, hopefully based on the scriptures, of what constitutes the reasons for going to a war, what is a, a just war, why would we even consider entering into a war, considering how outrageous... Uh, the consequences of war are people are killed, things are broken, uh, terrible bloodshed. One of the things to note when you look at a just war theory is when you're looking at scriptures for it, it's a little more difficult to look at it because in one case you can look at the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament you see a lot of wars that were commanded by God as punishment for the people whom the children of Israel were conquering. Now, we don't live in that kind of a situation. We don't have God giving us revelation and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, United States, you need to go to war to punish this people because they have rejected me. And so that makes it more difficult. And then, of course, when you get to the New Testament, you're looking at a situation where they are under the Roman government, but not a lot is said Mm -hmm. uh, directly politically. You can look at Romans 13 and also uh, 1 Timothy, but not an awful lot is said. Mm -hmm. So I guess what we have to do first before we answer the question of whether or not the American Revolution was justified based on this classic Christian criteria of just war theory is to uh, explain a little bit what are the uh, pieces of this just war theory. Who wants to take that one? I can do that. Uh, There are two parts, uh, traditionally, to just war theory. The first is what in Latin is called ius ad bellum, that is, what are the reasons for going to war? Mm -hmm. And then the second part, ius in bello, meaning uh, what is the right way of fighting the war once it's begun? The reasons for going to war, first of all, it has to be for a just cause. And Christian thinkers have differed on exactly what qualifies as a just cause. All agree, however, that defense against aggression uh, is certainly a just cause for going to war. Secondly, it needs to be a last resort. All other forms of resolving the conflict must be attempted first. Third, the war should be declared by a proper authority, by Mm -hmm. the sovereign power. 
Fourth, you should possess right intention. That is, you should be going to war with the intention of seeing justice done, not with the intention of achieving your own Mm self-interest. Although, of course, it's very easy to confuse those two. Fifth, you should have a reasonable chance of success. For example, to use a hypothetical example, if Monaco were to try to to, uh, go to war against the United States, it really would not have a reasonable chance of success. It would only be wasting human life and resources if it tried to do that. Okay. And then finally, the ends should be proportional to the means used. Uh, And that goes into the second area of of how you fight the war. Yeah, okay. So those are some of the uh, concepts. Briefly, that it's a just cause, typically a defense against aggression as a last resort. has to be uh, a legitimate authority that is waging this war. That really strikes home to me. I thought that was a fascinating concept Mm -hmm. there. We need to talk about that a little bit more. With right intention... uh, with a probability of success, or as you said, a reasonable chance of success, and, and this idea of proportionality. So, gentlemen, that is, in very brief terms, the definition of what constitutes a just war. Is that, I don't know where you want to take this next, but first do you want to try to say, is that uh, found in the Scripture, those, those concepts? Maybe that's a good place to start. I certainly think you find uh, many of the concepts found in Scripture there. Certainly, the stronger is is always to defend the weaker. There is always a sense of justice that should be done. And even if you look in the Old Testament, even though we don't have that direct command, you do see the principle being fleshed out there where you have Israel coming in and conquering and God commanding them to conquer these nations because they were so wicked and evil Mm -hmm. and oppressive and sacrificed their children and and did these kinds of things. So Mm -hmm. you see that going on. You also see the aspect of the proper authority. Obviously, Romans 13 talks about the ruler doing what is right and the ruler has to do what is right. And so a lot of arguments have been based on that, you know. Hmm. If the ruler ceases to do what is right, then what do you do? Right. I was noticing in Ecclesiastes 3, as we prepared for this, um, there's kind of an assumption that war is going to happen. It's kind of inevitable from time to time when uh, the writer says to everything, there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. Mm-hmm. We certainly would prefer times of peace, but I think that we must admit that, unfortunately, there are these times of war. We do have the times of war to resist the evil. And one of the interesting things, though, is if you look at some of the theological pacifists, throughout Mm -hmm. the years. If you look at them, especially the Anabaptists, Mm -hmm. um, the Mennonites of today, the the Amish, when they talked about pacifism, they did not have a concept, as much of the peace movement does today, of saying, if we do not fight, then everything will be okay. You know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the real problem is the war itself. And if we just do not fight, everyone will get along. Well, the Anabaptists had no illusions or delusions in okay. that area. Okay, so in other words, they knew better. They just had a conviction they that had a conviction they that were not to fight. They were not going to be in the world. Okay. And, and they even suggested 
that because they're pacifists, they are going to be persecuted even more. Mm-hmm. And they're going to suffer more. And that's why they have a book such as Martyr's Mirror, which is a huge book of martyrdom, basically saying, yeah, we're not going to fight and things are going to get worse. Okay, that's a good mm-hmm. distinction. So they're not like the so-called peaceniks of the, of the 60s. No, <laughs> not at all. Well, I see we're getting short on time here. We're coming up on a break. Uh, You're listening to A Plain Answer here on Redeemer Broadcasting. We will take a short break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Stay with us. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here on Redeemer Broadcasting. Today we're bringing up the subject and talking about the question of a just war. And now we extend that to the American Revolution and try to understand, was this American Revolution consistent with the Christian principles of a just war? Several years ago, I was teaching a U.S. history course, and we were discussing this issue. And one of the students in the class was a Canadian. And while most of the American students were quite sure that the revolution was justified, this Canadian Mm. student shook his head and said it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And he pointed out that uh, his country, uh, which chose not to participate in the revolution, was no less free and no less democratic uh, than the United States for having chosen uh, a different path. Mm -hmm. Did he finish the statement by saying, God save the queen? (laughs) (laughs) He did not, but he was wearing a Blue Jays jersey, a Toronto Blue Jays jersey. Uh, But I think it points out the fact, we often forget that the American Revolution was in many ways a civil war. That is, that there were Americans on both sides of the issue, and British uh, subjects on both sides of the issue as well, in England. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here chuckling to myself because in the previous segment, when we first opened the program, we play some of the theme music from... The Patriot film. (laughs) And so I feel like today's discussion is already biased from a real objective point of view. But uh, anyway, let's talk about then um, some of the views during the Revolutionary War. Some of the views, I believe it was Tories. Maybe, maybe right, that one Tories first. or Loyalists. Uh-huh. Uh, probably made up at least 20% of the population. Uh-huh. Uh, John Adams put the number at about one third. 
um, but probably a little lower than that. But in any case, uh, a significant number of Americans did remain loyal to the crown. And of course, they argued that the revolution was not justified. Uh, it's important to point out that most of the loyalists were just as upset about the new taxes and the policies that the British government was instituting. Yes. The difference is that they were looking for a peaceful resolution. All right. And they often cited the passage from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, about submitting to the authorities. Mm-hmm. Reverend Jonathan Butcher, who was an Anglican minister in Virginia, and in fact a tutor to George Washington's stepson, uh, Reverend Butcher wrote, Obedience to government is every man's duty, because it is every man's interest, but it is particularly incumbent on Christians, because it is enjoined by the positive commands of God. Hmm. And he went on to say, if the form of government under which the good providence of God has been pleased to place us be less indulgent and less liberal than in reason it ought to be, still it is our duty not to disturb and destroy the peace of the community by becoming refractory and rebellious subjects and resisting mm. the ordinances of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reverend Butcher, who's an Anglican, and that part of it was one of the things that got under the craw of a lot of the, uh, the colonists at the time, because the Anglican Church, for years and years and years, did not send a bishop. And finally, when it gets to the point where there's this division occurring, they finally send a bishop over there. Oh, that's interesting. And so a lot of the colonists said, now you're finally sending one over, Mm -hmm. and what's it to do? It's to put us under the thumb Mm -hmm. even more. I read through this sermon. I was interested to see that most of his arguments were more philosophic and less scriptural. Mm. Dr. Vogt also gave us a uh, sermon by, which may he was it? Jonathan Mayhew. Jonathan Mayhew. Was he related to the Mayhews of Martha's Vineyard? Who'd done that tremendous missionary work. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was probably right. And I should say to the listener that uh, we have these two articles before us, uh, one by Mayhew, the other by Butcher. And we were studying this before we came into the studio today, so that's what you're referring to. Go ahead. And his argument was more biblical. He argued from Romans chapter 13 and pointed out that okay, if the government then is unjust, because, of course, Romans 13 says, what does the governing authority do? It rewards the good, and it punishes the evil. Mm -hmm. And he says, oh, Mm -hmm. but if that isn't the case, then that can be overthrown. I have a problem Mm -hmm. with his argument as well, Mm -hmm. from a biblical standpoint, because what does God do? In Habakkuk, God says, I am sending an evil nation to punish you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, at Mm -hmm. least his is more biblical, at Mm -hmm. least... He's attacking it from that. So I would disagree with him on that, mm-hmm. on that level. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember uh, our last time together, which was a couple weeks ago now, when we were looking at Romans 13, we said not only is that descriptive, but it's prescriptive. And I think you mm-hmm. touched upon that, Mark, when you said rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So there it's prescribed for them what they are supposed to be doing, how right. that they're supposed to be supporting the good and not the evil. And uh, we can't call evil good and good evil. And also the fact that Romans 13, verse 4 says, he's God's minister to you for good. So it strongly implies that he has a knowledge of the law of God himself, and he's obligated to obey that law as a just ruler in society. Right. And so the loyalists uh, point out, and in fact, Butcher mentions it in his sermon, that Jesus, when asked the question of whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes, 
looked at the coin and said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's and render under God what is God's. Yeah. And so they argued that, well, you know, this issue of taxation, we may not like the taxes, but it's not grounds uh, mm-hmm. for revolt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is when you look at the Declaration of Independence that the Continental Congress adopted, it's a catalog of grievances to show why the revolution was justified. Uh-huh. And in fact, in his introduction, Thomas Jefferson writes that you shouldn't revolt for light and transient reasons. Uh, And so therefore, he offers evidence of what he calls a long train of abuses and usurpations designed to reduce them under absolute despotism. Mm -hmm. He also points out that, and again, I quote from the Declaration, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms, but Hmm. our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. Okay. Therefore, making the point that this was, in fact, uh, a last resort, that all other options had been uh, exhausted first. Yeah. How did the guys, <laughs> the guys, during the Revolutionary War period, how did people deal with this one concept within just war theory of having legitimate authority? After the colonies uh, had made the decision that they were going to resist uh, British rule, they formed new governments in many cases. And then, of course, elected delegates to this Continental Congress, representatives from all 13 of the colonies. Mm -hmm. Even that Continental Congress, however, which first meets in 1774 after the Boston Tea Party and, and the British response to that, that Continental Congress waits two years before they declare independence, and they try again to send petitions and to uh, find a peaceful solution. At the same time, of course, yeah. by 1775, they've authorized the creation of an army and appointed George Washington to head it. Um, so they were not quick to enter into revolution by any means? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. so that was their legitimate authority, that Continental Congress. Yeah, and when you look at that, if the Declaration of Independence had been written in 1775 and they had split off, I think there's a very strong argument for saying that they didn't have a just reason okay. uh, to rebel and to turn. However, it wasn't until 1776 that they wrote the Declaration of Independence when the war had already started. Mm-hmm. The war was already there, and how did it start? It started by little resistance to what uh, the colonial authorities felt was illegitimate usurpation of, well, the first one, Lexington and Concord. The British were going to take away their guns. And we know that is... (laughs) We're smiling here. (laughs) This is a a fundamental crime. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When you look at uh, the events that occur in in April of uh, 1775 at Lexington and Concord, Um, Although it's not entirely clear who fired the first shot, what is pretty clear is that the American militia, the Minutemen, waited. Mm. and uh, That's important. Okay. Yes, they did not come both at at Lexington. The Minutemen draw up on the green, and in fact, uh, their commander, Colonel Parker, orders them to fall back when the British Mm -hmm. advance, uh, Mm -hmm. and then shots are fired, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same thing at Concord. The the militia watched the British for well over an hour All right, that's uh, helpful. before they... Uh, that's helpful. I mean, even today in, in uh, self-defense courses and that sort of thing that's taught to the public, uh, there's uh, some very strict um, rules that, that are taught to people regarding self-defense, and basically you don't uh, fire until you're fired upon. And that's a pretty dire circumstance, really. 
Was there a uh, right intention? Um, that was the fourth point that you originally opened with and shared with us, Hans, from Just War Theory. What would we say the right intention was? Correcting a so-called suffered wrong. Certainly America. defending uh, the rights and also defending, uh, as Mark pointed out, against aggression. It mm-hmm. had become uh, aggression and war by 1775. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, yes, the uh, patriots believed that they had uh, right intention and, and justification. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the loyalists uh, argued against that. And um, hmm. you have to feel a little bad for the loyalists. They were treated pretty <laughs> badly right. in right. the war. Most of them suffered the, the confiscation of their property. Hmm. Um, over 50,000 went into exile at the Mm. end of the war. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of them, of course, to Canada, where they actually founded two Canadian provinces, New Brunswick and Ontario, were both founded by uh, loyalists who had to flee into exile after the revolution. Did the, um, at least the patriots, did they see this action basically as a last resort? I would think so, yeah. They certainly had issued their grievances. And as I say, when it finally push came to shove, it was they're just standing up at the last thing. I mean, what's happening at Lexington and Concord? They're coming to take our guns. They're mm-hmm. coming to, to really mm-hmm. uh, prevent us from doing anything. That's where it happened, and it mm-hmm. escalated from there. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a conflict that really begins in 1763 yeah. uh, in terms of the... the Mm-hmm. Not physical conflict, but the ideological conflict between Britain and the colonies. And last, so it's lasted for over 11 years by the time you get to Lexington and, and conquer mm-hmm. 12 years. One of the things I just wanted to point out, too, is a lot of times when you have a situation like this, God in his providence is, is working behind the scenes, you right. know, and it's not yeah. always something that's well thought out. And I'm mm-hmm. just looking back at the time of David and after Saul dies, and of course David is loyal to Saul, would not kill him, you know, he is a divine appointed ruler. And what happens when Saul dies? Well, his son Ishbosheth takes over. Hmm. In accordance with the rest of the ideology at that time, is that, yeah, the son takes over from the father. But David had his own army together, and so then you have that kind of resistance that finally worked itself out when Ishbosheth was assassinated. Mm-hmm. But here again, I'm not sure that David thought through a just war theory there, but it was just that he knew God had anointed him. He would not move early on Saul, but uh, after Saul had died, uh, Mm -hmm. he stepped up. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though there was resistance by ten tribes, Mm -hmm. God obviously uh, desired for him Mm -hmm. to be king. Mm -hmm. Looking more at some of the principles of a just war, uh, one I'm not sure we covered yet was... Uh, soldiers must try to distinguish between armies and civilians and never kill civilians on purpose. Was this sense evident in the uh, Revolutionary War? For the most part. um, Mm. 18th century warfare was much different than modern warfare. Mm. Uh, A smoothbore musket um, was a notoriously inaccurate weapon that functioned best at close range. Sure. Um, it's a lot different than a modern-day cruise missile. Oh, boy, I uh, guess. That said, both sides did, of course, unfortunately commit atrocities during the course of the war. And, uh, you know, that is, of course, one of the reasons for just war theory in the first place is the recognition that, as you said at the beginning, Dan, war is terrible very often. Mm. And that uh, once you begin a war, it's very difficult uh, with the 
emotions that come into play and the sense of revenge that comes into play, it's very difficult to try to abide by those standards of right and wrong. Yeah. One of the things you do see is there are accounts of George Washington actually trying his own troops for some of the things they did to Tories. Yes. Oh. And uh, so Washington really had a very high standard, but you also had some atrocities, especially with relationship to the Indians. And there was a couple different areas. First off, with the Indians, the problem was uh, from the British side, they couldn't distinguish between the British or the Americans. So Uh. the Cherry Valley Massacre, Jane McRae, that was a terrible thing that the British Indians committed. Mm -hmm. But Jane McRae was a Tory. (laughs) They killed a Tory. And on the other side, the Wyoming Massacre, the American troops went and they finally found some Indians They were Delaware Indians, completely peaceful and out of the war, and they slaughtered them. It was a terrible thing. Well, I see we're out of time already for this edition of A Plain Answer. We've got so much material here, we probably will have to continue this next week. In the studio with me today has been uh, Reverend Mark Diedrich, serving as pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York, and Dr. Hans Vogt, associate professor at Ulster County Community College, And if you have questions that you would like us to address on this program, you're welcome to email us. Just go to our website and find the link, contact us, and follow through with it that way. We're out of time for today. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of A Plain Answer. May God be with you today as you serve Him.